Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You're listening to a podcast from the South China Morning Post. Hello, and welcome to the China Geopolitics Podcast. I'm Chad Bray here at the South China Morning Post. Here in Hong Kong, the monsoon season has finally begun, but storm clouds are gathering over the future of press freedom under the national security law in this city. In terms of geopolitics in China, there have been two major stories this week, which will have an ongoing impact on its relationship with the United States. The first was the official announcement that China's ambassador to the United States, Sui Tiankai, will be leaving his position and heading back to Beijing. I'll be talking to political economy desk editor Zhou Xin about the legacy of China's longest-serving ambassador to the U.S. His reputation as a level-headed, respectful diplomat from the old school is in stark contrast to the brash new wolf warrior types on Twitter. But more importantly, you're going to hear about his replacement, a man who's had zero experience either as an ambassador or in the American political environment, but is very close to Xi Jinping. But we started this week with headlines driven by Canada's ambassador to the UN, Leslie Norton, making this statement. We're gravely concerned about the human rights situation in the Xinjiang Uyghur Autonomous Region. We call on Chinese authorities to abide by their human rights obligations. That was her addressing the UN Human Rights Council on behalf of 40 countries, calling for China to give the UN access to Xinjiang. That was followed on Wednesday with the latest escalation from the Biden administration over Xinjiang, with new sanctions targeting companies involved in solar cell manufacturing. That's what we thought we were going to talk about on the podcast this week. But today, the SCMP political economy team published explosive revelations that some of the biggest investment in pension funds in the U.S., including BlackRock, the world's biggest asset manager, are making millions from companies based in Xinjiang. And they're not just making millions, they're actively engaged in corporate boards, voting in board meetings, and making decisions in an economy the U.S. Congress claims is based on forced labor. It's another great piece of investigative journalism from the team in Washington and Hong Kong, and we're going to hear about it in detail from Jacob Fromer. We hit the ground running this morning, and we're picking up speed. Let's get on with the show. On Tuesday, China's ambassador to the United States, Sui Tain Kai, announced he would be leaving Washington and returning home. Sui held that position for eight years, starting with the Obama administration all the way through Donald Trump's era, and now ending just months into the Biden presidency. We have Zhou Xin here in uh, Hong Kong, and he's going to tell us more about Sui. This has been uh, long overdue for uh, Ambassador Sui to go to return to China. Uh, because he has been there, as you said, you know, for eight years. Usually, for a Chinese ambassador, the average should be three or four years. But apparently, like he is in a very important position, managing a very, very important relationship. So he cannot just you know leave Washington and go back for Beijing in the last couple of years. As you mentioned, he started when Obama was still in the uh, White House. You know, a year before that, according to a book about Hillary Clinton. Tsui was a counterpart of uh, Clinton. 
negotiating the relocation of Chen Guangchen, the, the dissident lawyer from China to the United States. And, you know, when he leaves, it's four years of crazy Trump area is ended. And now it's Biden in the, uh, in, in the White House. So Cui is really a very, very important person for the China-U.S. relationship. And his departure is also seen by many as the end of an engagement area. You know, Cui represents an old generation of Chinese diplomats. Cui was in, as early as in the 1980s, you know, he spent a few years in New York and then he was trained at the uh, U.S. school. So, you know, he knows the language of the American people. And he also, even from the first day to the last day, even his last letter, is still calling for dialogue, for an understanding. And in this area, when China and the U.S. have an increasingly confrontational attitude on both sides, this kind of voice, of course, will long-term observers fear that these kind of voices or these kind of moderate opinions were getting uh, weaker and weaker. And so making the whole relationship more and more dangerous. That's why, you know, East departure has raised so much attention in the discussion among uh, whether diplomats or analysts. You know, people care about the future of the relationship of the two countries. And the people have a kind of concern, you know, will the departure of Cui also put an end of the last kind of smooth and uh, uh, a nice communication channel between Beijing and Washington. It's very interesting to, uh, to see the change there. I, I was recently watching a documentary about Jimmy Carter, and they were talking about sort of opening up with China. And one of the first things uh, they did is Jimmy Carter asked the Chinese ambassador, what can I do for you? And he said, I want to go to Nashville. And so he took the ambassador to Nashville. They met you know, June Carter, Johnny Cash. They met with all the record executives. It was really a way to establish a relationship. And now we're sort of in a change. You know, we've had the Trump administration and we have the wolf warriors, uh, dip diplomats in China. So I, I'm sort of curious, are we going to see a wolf warrior type in with, with his replacement who's coming in? Well, uh, fingers crossed. I mean, nobody really can predict what will happen exactly uh, next. But we, we can see, I mean, they have uh, clearly, uh, you know, different background. Qinggang is, is tipped or is supposed to be the next ambassador replacing uh, Cui Tiankai. And I think that's likely the case. Because if you look at the age, Mr. Cui was uh, almost like 17 now. He was celebrating his 70th uh, birthday this October. But Mr. Ching, Ambassador Ching, was just a 55. So they grew up in completely like different areas. 15 years can make a lot of difference in China's recent history. When Mr. Cui was in New York in 1980s, I mean, it's basically another word for most of the Chinese people. But for Mr. Ching, whose, whose career, you know, um, when he climbed the ladder within the Chinese diplomacy system, it's almost like it's a stage when China trying to find its own voice, China trying to uh, make its uh, voice heard on the global stage. That's why Ching Gang made his name now. You know, Ching Gang become a, a, a hero, a fan for most of the Chinese people when he was a spokesperson of the foreign ministry. And every day or at least a few times a week, he just come out and mocking the, uh, the U.S. policies you know, belittling uh, the uh, Japanese uh, rhetorics or, you know, declaring China's rights over the South China Sea. So you can see the, the, the huge differences between the two generations of diplomats. So I, well, I, I will not say that it's that necessary uh, uh, wolf warrior style, but certainly it will be more strong. It will be more assertive or confident in China's sense. 
And I wanted to ask, you know, given his age and the amount of time he'd, he'd been there, were there are there concerns in Beijing about him maybe being a bit too Americanized, a, a bit too willing to have a, a, you know, open relationship with the U.S. that's not as confrontational? No, but for Mr. Say, that's that's nice, right? Uh, for China's development, I mean, at the very beginning, at least, you know, uh, when China joined the WTO, or when China is still opening its doors to the capitals and uh, know-how, management, expertise, China needs these kind of things. And uh, Mr. Sui has played a very important role in bridging this kind of uh, demand and supply. Uh, but for Mr. Cheng, I, I think the requirement will be uh, different. It, it's now, for, for Beijing, is seeing like the Washington is taking an increasingly aggressive uh, stance uh, to challenge China's bottom lines of Hong Kong, of Xinjiang, of South China Sea. So China has to hold firm and to make it clear to the Washington side, you know, really there, there are no consensus or compromises to make on these uh, on these lines. But at the same time, you know, we can recognize each other and we can still have the business as usual in terms of uh, trade and economy. At least that's the idea, that's a concept in Beijing. So this is a, this is, should be done by a different person with a different background and personality. It's also interesting how he described his, his departure from Washington. You know, Sway didn't say, I'm retiring, you know, he's 70. But he said, I'm leaving. So what kind of role could he have back in Beijing when he returns? Well, he can become one of these uh, close advisors. As we all know, that he has a very long-term uh, working relationship with Yang Jiechi, who remains the top the delegate for President Xi Jinping. So if he has some uh, friends, uh, you know, have some uh, mobile phones to call back in Washington, and if he got some emails to, you know, their email chains, he can get some of these information and maybe can provide more insights and opinions or views and, you know, into the, into the decision-making process. I'm curious in, in terms of Chingan, um, sort of what should we expect in terms of his ability to manage American affairs? Obviously, he's, he's had a very public role sort of challenging them um, as a spokesperson. But what should we expect when he actually is on the ground in Washington? Well, one advantage of uh, uh, Ambassador Ching, uh, we call him Ambassador a little bit earlier, is that he has a very close relationship and has a full backing of uh, President Xi Jinping because his uh, promotion to the ambassador position in Washington has broke lots of uh, unwritten rules within the Chinese diplomacy uh, tradition and the system. He has never been actually an ambassador before. And his, in other words, his first ambassador position is like the most important position for the Chinese foreign ministry. And why he can get the job? Because reasonably uh, assumed that he has a full support and uh, the full confidence of President Xi. This is very important because imagine, you know, China and the U.S. are going into a very, uh, how to say, volatile period of time. And there uh, could be one problem after another or even mini crisis from all the way to human rights of to military over the South China Sea, over the Taiwan uh, Straits. And, you know, if Mr. Ching being there, you know, can be immediately get the information to, to the top in Beijing, that certainly help a lot. To sort of close it out, one thing I want to ask about is Sui was, you know, seen very publicly on television. He was active on Twitter. You know, he talked about his fond memories as he was leaving the United States. But Chen, you know, his public profile's mostly been in China. And does he have the kind of public profile to sort of handle those kinds of appearances, you know, as a major ambassador needs to do? That's a very interesting question because, I mean, Ching is a top Chinese diplomat, and that should be part of his job description, right, when he applied for that. So I think he's definitely not media shy. 
Okay, judging from his experience in dealing with the foreign media, including like TV and uh, you know all sorts of uh, uh, tough questions, he know how to handle them. What amazed uh, uh, most of viewers is that Qing has really changed the style of Chinese foreign ministry. And before that, you know, they often minister spokesmen just repeat the, uh, the statements. Basically, it's reading out whatever the question is. You know, I just read my, the statement. Oh, okay, it's about South China Sea, so I have uh, two paragraphs, so I just read it to you. But Qing is different, right? When Qing Gang took the stage, he creates his own languages. You know, it's more memorable. It's more quotable. It can be, you know, passed from mouse to mouse <laughs> for the Chinese audience. So I think he has a talent. He has these kind of skills. So first, they're saying maybe he, after he moved to Washington, could be, uh, you know, opening a Twitter because we know Tsui has, uh, has has a Twitter account, has lots of followers, and uh, I don't see a, a dedicated account to Qinggang yet. So I think he will try to, you know, borrow a page from uh, Donald Trump, you know, to use a new media to appeal to the to the audience. So, yes, I, I think he will be quite um, high profile in his uh, uh, new role because that's part of his uh, uh, portfolio. That's also part of the requirements. Yeah, and I think it's become a uh, part of diplomacy to do that. Certainly the UK ambassador, uh, China's uh, ambassador to the exactly. United Kingdom. Exactly. Even, even if uh, Mr. Ching wants to keep a profile, I don't think the U.S. media will allow him to do so, right? But but will he be on Instagram? I wonder. <laughs> yes, or TikTok. Exactly. Uh, probably the preferable version. Um, uh, Joe Shin, thanks for joining us. I appreciate it. Thank you, Chad. As critical news stories emerging from China continue to shape lives and business around the world, the weekly SCMP Global Impact Newsletter brings you expert analyses and insights on the economics of COVID-19, society, technology, and the environment. Sign up to receive your weekly email at scmp.com slash newsletters. This morning, we woke up to what is best described as explosive revelations in a story that shows us how geopolitics, human rights, climate change, and economics all converge in one region of Western China, Xinjiang. Jacob Fromer is staying up late tonight in Washington to talk to us about this. Jacob, good evening. Now, before we get into the details of your latest explosive story, can you take us through the sanctions that were announced this week uh, when the U.S. Commerce Department targeted companies in Xinjiang, particularly those uh, making uh, parts, I believe, there for solar panels? First of all, thank you for having me back on the podcast. It's always great to be able to uh, chat with you from here in Washington. You're right. There was action uh, taken this week by the Biden administration targeting a key ingredient in solar panels. It's called polysilicon. And uh, there have been numerous uh, reports from you know, research organizations and the global press and uh, human rights groups that have basically linked the production of this material, polysilicon, to the suspected forced labor in Xinjiang. What's happened in recent months is that in addition to some of the other goods, um, that have kind of become synonymous with this issue in Xinjiang, like cotton and tomatoes. Suddenly, solar has been grouped together with these other products coming out of Xinjiang, and it has become a real hot issue in Washington. It's a real point of concern for uh, people who are you know, watching closely what's happening in Xinjiang. And so the Biden administration responded to that this week. There were a few different actions. First, there was a ban. In the jargon, it's called a withhold release order, but it was a, a ban on one particular uh, company in the region that makes polysilicon for um, solar uh, panels. 
uh, some people had been wondering if the administration was going to go for a full, what's called a sectoral ban um, for all uh, solar products coming out of the Xinjiang region. But uh, what happened this week so far was just one particular company. The uh, second action that the administration took was that they added a few different um, companies involved in the production of polysilicon in Xinjiang to what's called the entity list. And that's basically a ban on American firms from selling equipment to those companies, basically saying you can't help them do what they're doing. So there was a group of uh, Xinjiang companies that produce polysilicon that are now subject to this export ban as well coming from goods coming out of the U.S. And then there was a, a third action from the Department of Labor uh, that basically they maintain a list of goods produced by child labor or forced labor, and they added Chinese polysilicon to that list. Yeah. And Jacob, it's interesting because, you know, really from the beginning of the trade war, solar has been an important part of sort of the U.S. response to China. So the Biden administration is really trying to take global leadership when it comes to climate change, and solar is going to be a big part of that. So I'm curious what a ban like this will mean for the U.S. economy, and particularly for plans like the infrastructure plan that, that's been talked about overnight. Right. Well, almost back to back with the administration's announcement on polysilicon, there was actually a Senate hearing um, in the Foreign Relations Committee that took place on a piece of legislation that is very broad that would uh, effectively, if it, if it became law, it would ban all products coming out of Xinjiang from entering the U.S., whether it's polysilicon or a t-shirt or anything else. And the bill had no objections from any senators. They're united in that, you know, we need to stop uh, buying polysilicon solar equipment that's made in Xinjiang. But this debate broke out in the hearing where Senator Cruz wanted to sort of amend the legislation and give it an extra emphasis on solar panel kind of, you know, he was accused of sort of adding something that was redundant. And Senator Markey, who is, you know, the Senate author of the Green New Deal, this big climate change uh, legislation in the Senate, he came out and said, you just have a vendetta against solar power, which Senator Cruz denied. Um, and it's really rare these days to see in Congress, but they really are united in, in how they view China, especially what's going on in Xinjiang. But it's so easy to see these rifts and the solar issue in particular is a bit contentious just because it involves this infrastructure plan and climate change and all these issues that are, are not quite as bipartisan as talking about Xinjiang. I want to turn now to your story this morning with Sisi uh, Joe. It's it's just been published on scmp.com. You talk about a wide array of uh, U.S. and Chinese public records being used to look into this. It's very interesting. You've got three of the biggest mutual fund companies in the United States, in Vanguard, in BlackRock, in State Street, who are investing in Xinjiang. And so tell us a little bit about how you tracked down this story and really got into it, because it's, it's quite interesting. Sure. Yeah. Well, this was a really uh, interesting one to work on. It was basically we stumbled upon this story when we were working on our last sort of deep dive into the Xinjiang economy um, a few months ago. Sissy and my colleague Finbar and I were working on this story about viscose rayon, which is the third most common clothing material. And we sort of pieced together how this global supply chain for this product goes straight through Xinjiang. And um, 
when we were doing research on it, I was just kind of digging around for any bit of information I could find on uh, one of the Xinjiang companies that we were looking into and, and just uh, hoping that I might find something. I went onto the SEC website you know, here in the US, that's the Securities and Exchange Commission. They handle stocks, basically. And I typed in the company name, just not knowing what I would find. And I saw that there were some US mutual funds sort of popping up in the results. And I kind of put it aside at the time and said, let me come back to that because I don't really know what that's all about. And when I did come back to it, I started looking into it with Sissy. And what we found is that it wasn't just this one uh, Xinjiang company, but dozens of them have received investments from these huge American mutual funds. Um, and these are mutual funds that are household names um, here in the U.S. that people's retirement savings, you know, they, they trust them, they park their money in them. And what we found is that they are basically, despite all of the reporting that's coming out about Xinjiang, despite all the rhetoric that's coming out of Washington, there are millions of dollars flowing to the Xinjiang economy. They're buying you know, millions of shares of stock. In our research, we found the vast majority of them have been bought by Vanguard uh, among the big three. I just want to butt in for a second because it, it, it's interesting. We have so many sanctions that are going on right now and so much focus on this region is it legal for these companies to be invested in these firms right now? Right now, it is legal. There have been sanctions, as you said, on various parts of the Xinjiang economy. You know, there's this new, you know, solar um, issue that we're talking about. There are other bans. Um, there are other sanctions, human rights sanctions under the Global Magnitsky Act that, you know, ban any sort of transaction with certain entities in, in Xinjiang. But these investments right now are not illegal. And it kind of bucks the trend, you could say, um, in terms of not just what's still legal, what's still left if you want to be participating in Xinjiang's economy from here in the U.S., but also just when there is you know, this widespread concern here in the U.S., it's not just human rights groups, by the way, there are whole industry organizations that are you know, saying we need to leave this region because of all of the reporting that's come out about it. And um, at the same time, you, know, you have these giant mutual funds. You know, they have trillions of dollars in assets around the world, and they've parked millions of dollars into this particular region. And Another thing that we found in doing our reporting, going through these records, is that they're not just passively parking the money into these companies and leaving it there 20 years later, coming back and seeing how they did. As shareholders in these companies, they're actually using their power the, you know, that they have as shareholders to cast proxy votes in the decisions that the companies are making. And so we actually, this is all public. Anybody can go look it up on the Securities and Exchange Commission website. And they were basically voting on, you know, the reports that these um, Xinjiang companies were producing. They were voting on, you know, elevating board members, deals that they're making with other companies in the region. And that's all normal. These mutual funds, they're known as the big three because, you know, they're the biggest. And um, that's, that's just what they do. But once we started looking into, well, 
what exactly does this report say that they voted to approve? You know, who is this manager who they just promoted, voted to promote? And what is this company that they just, you know, voted um, that Vanguard said, you know, on behalf of all of our investors, we're going to vote to approve this or that. Um, we started looking into it. And in the reports, the companies themselves were describing, you know, activities in Xinjiang that human rights groups say are bright red flags for human rights abuses. Let me interrupt you for a second on that, because it, it's something where a number of these companies have marketed themselves as being responsible investors. You know, in, environmental, social and governance is a, a large portion of what they're selling. You mentioned in the story, at least uh, some of the investments have been marketed in an ESG fund. There's a statement I want to read on Vanguard's website, which says, we have a well-established process for identifying governance risk in our portfolio companies. So I'm curious how these companies are able to do this, where they market in an ESG fund, which I believe is a BlackRock fund, or you know how they say we're responsible investors. Have you heard any kind of official response from the companies? Well, Vanguard declined to comment for the story. State Street declined to comment for the story. Uh, we did get a brief statement from BlackRock, so they did um, engage with us on that. But you're right. The issue of what's called ESG, um, this sort of ethically conscious investing, um, has become uh, much bigger in recent years. People think of it often in terms of um, companies, you know, related to fossil fuels or, you know, guns or, you know, using their, you know, shareholder power to, you know, make sure corporate boards are more diverse, um, have more women on them. But, you know, I was speaking to one expert um, who studies the issue of corporate governance and ESG investing and, you know, who basically said, you know, human rights isn't quite there yet. And you do have this situation where these ESG funds are being marketed to Americans say, come trust us with your money. Um, if you, even if you care about these issues, we'll, we'll invest it smartly. And um, we found, you know, in these ESG funds, there were multiple uh, Xinjiang companies in there who, in their own words, in their own annual reports, um, have described activities in Xinjiang that any human rights group would say is, you know, just a, a euphemism for uh, human rights abuses against the Uyghur population in the region. Let me ask you about what's being said in Washington at this point. Has there been any official or unofficial response? And, you know, do you think we could see a further move as we've seen with the investments in companies with ties to the Chinese military where we could see sort of investment bans? Yeah, that's something that we're definitely looking out for. I mean, as um, this story was getting published, you know, it just came sort of shortly after we had started working on it long before this happened. But the timing was just right because um, the Biden administration, you know, announced basically a ban on Americans. You are not allowed to invest in this list of uh, Chinese companies related to uh, surveillance and the military and things like that. And so the administration has already shown a willingness that they are going to crack down. They're not afraid to stop Americans from investing in certain companies. And then at the same time, you have in Congress, you know, action already, you know, legislation being introduced and the rhetoric is heating up and people are sort of starting to see not necessarily yet about Xinjiang in particular, but just sort of China in general, you know, so far on um, this issue of beyond supply chains, you know, the issue of investments. Are we funding their economy? This kind of basic question. We'll see what happens uh, with this story um, and sort of what the reaction is going to be. But, it, you know, from my conversations, it's 
seems like it was a sort of a, a blind spot that people weren't necessarily thinking about when, you know, there was already these other pieces falling into place. Um, and there's already so much attention on, on Xinjiang. Well, you know, we've talked a lot on this podcast about Xinjiang and everything from cotton to retailers being targeted to John Deere having to pull heavy equipment out. And so when it comes to mutual funds, they're not very sexy. A lot of people just sort of sit with them and they forget them. But is this something where people are really going to react? They're really going to change. They're really going to push a Vanguard, a BlackRock, a State Street to make a change. Because many of these sit in like index funds where they don't really see what's happening with their investment. Right. That's a really good question. You know, it, it's it's not on the surface necessarily as, as juicy as, you know, thinking about John Deere, you know, Coca-Cola, these name brands, these, you know, icons of Americana. But um, the thing about mutual funds is a lot of people have them. Um, this is, you know, people's retirement savings. They don't think about them. They don't necessarily know where the money is going. And one thing that just stands out about the issue of Xinjiang beyond, you know, the downturn in public opinion about China and, and all that um, here in the U.S., but just about Xinjiang in particular is that the awareness about the human rights issues going on there is just so much higher than it was even just a few years ago. And I think that, you know, what the companies will decide to do, what lawmakers will decide to do, I, I don't know. But I do know that there is just a growing consciousness about um, the Xinjiang issue. And in our story, I'll just give you one, you know, brief example of what we were looking at, where you had one, you know, Xinjiang company in its report, it was in a social responsibility section of their annual report, you know, stating it very proudly, but they were talking about their work to um, this is a quote, strengthen the ideological re-education of transferred workers. And these are red flags for human rights groups, for observers who are looking at Xinjiang right now. And that company, at the time that the report was produced, Vanguard owned more than 1 million shares of that company's stock, and they voted to approve that report. And so this is the kind of information that just your average American, if they're paying attention to the news, if they're paying attention to what's going on, you know, around the world, they will often care about these things. It's far away. You know, it's, it's, you know, not happening right in front of them. But when you add in the fact that it's might be their own money, they might have an issue with it. But what Vanguard and these other mutual funds decide to do, what lawmakers and the Biden administration decide to do, you know, we'll have to see. Well, Jacob, it's Thursday night in uh, Washington. It's Friday morning here in Hong Kong. U.S. media is going to wake up tomorrow and, and see this story, and it, it's going to be interesting. We look forward to following more of it on scmp.com, and thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. That's all for the China Geopolitics podcast this week. But of course, our coverage continues 24 hours a day, seven days a week on scmp.com. This story you've just heard Jacob talking about is what we like to refer to as many moving parts, not the least of which is how those big finance institutions mentioned in this story, particularly BlackRock, made substantial donations to the election funds of both Democrats and Republicans. And a reminder that it's very much worth your while to look back at the archive of stories filed by Jacob, along with Finbar Birmingham and Sissy Joe over the past year to see just how entwined the U.S. economy is with companies operating in Xinjiang. It's going to be interesting to see how both the U.S. media and the Beijing government react to the latest story. 
And of course, we'll be back next week to bring you more reporting and more analysis on this podcast. My name's Chad Bray. Thanks for listening. Don't forget, you can follow the latest from Jacob Sissy and the political economy team on Twitter at SCMP Economy. You can find me on Twitter. I'm at Chad Bray. Have a great weekend. Stay safe. We'll be back next week. Bye for now. Hi, I'm Dori Shafrier. And I'm Kate Spencer. And we are the hosts of Forever 35. And today... We're talking about Club Med, the best all-inclusive getaway for families. Today, Club Med has nearly 70 resorts worldwide, from beachside resorts in the Caribbean and Mexico, to magical locations in the Maldives and Morocco, to ski resorts in the mountains from Canada to the Alps. Between their all-inclusive family programming, wellness offerings, land and water sports, and their French heritage-inspired food and drink offerings, Club Med is the best way to elevate your family getaway, no matter which location you're at. To learn more, visit clubmed.us.